I think uh, what I just went through for the last four hours or so is better for a Woody Allen movie than uh, than reality. Or maybe Beirut's story is sometimes uh, so much more comical than any movie that could be imagined. But uh, I'm going to focus in on one part of the conversation because uh, I think it's a it's it's an existential question, maybe without sounding too much like Woody Allen right now. It's a it's an important question. Let's assume things calm down. Let's create a scenario where the temperature cools on Lebanon. Uh, let's even go all the way here. Iran reconsiders its assets in Lebanon. It reconsiders its whole security uh, apparatus. And it reigns in Hezbollah's weapons. And it leaves Hezbollah as a Lebanese political party without weapons. No longer a sub-state group the way we know it. Uh, no longer a security uh, machine that delivers Iran's uh, needs or for that matter, interferes in Syria, let alone uh, does what it does in Lebanon. With that Hezbollah uh, disarmament, let's assume that Syria, with Russian-backed, uh, with Russian sponsorship or Russian uh, assistance, does not interfere in Lebanese affairs. Let's say the Syrian exit in 2005 is permanent. And let's assume that no other country has the immediate need to enter Lebanon. So basically, the geopolitical story, the thing that I talk about day in, day out, uh, the nightmare is over. Let's say there's a window of opportunity uh, so that Lebanon has some breathing space. I was trying to think of an assurance that Lebanon would not end up back in another geopolitical mess. And the reason I ask it this way is because it seems like that is the natural tendency, with the exception of the 1960s, most of the 1960s, that regional problems hit Lebanon hard. Assassinations are not new. Uh, brief intermittent fighting, let alone a near civil war in 1958, you can call it a mini-civil war. Um, and all the problems Lebanon had from the 1970s onwards until today. I mean, even the French mandate is difficult. Post-independence, I mean, first elected leaders are killed. Um, regional nationalism versus Lebanese nationalism, Arab nationalism versus something far more local, it found its way in this country in the most violent way. But then you have that anomaly. You have an anomaly, which is, I think, twofold. You have a unu highly unusual Lebanese president named Fouad Sheb, who comes in in 1958, right after a mini-civil war that brings in American Marines and uh, the Baghdad Pact and all the stuff that was happening back then. The United Arab Republic, Egypt and Syria next door. But Fouad Heb does something which is very unusual. He really starts focusing on the state. He goes after 
the traditional political elite. It's funny to say that for things back then. And these people were probably, you know, so much better than the crowd that we're stuck with right now. But he goes after them to a point. Uh, he builds institutions or he invests in state institutions. That famous sort of uh, visit where Abdel Nasser is not allowed in Lebanon, they meet at the border between Lebanon and the United Arab Republic, Syria. Um, it's fairly quiet, given how problematic things are in the region. Lebanon is not paying the price. And then you have something else. You have, you have the after effect of that. It's not, uh, maybe it's not as stable as that early, those six years of Fouad Shab's presidency. But you have Charles Hallou. And you have a situation which is, which is absurd if you think about it today. The 1967 war, not one bullet across the border. Lebanon stays out of that war. I mean, in history, you can look back and talk about it as a moment in time, but the 1967 war is a traumatic experience for the region. It's a humiliating defeat. Israel grabs the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights from Syria. I mean, if you think about it, Lebanon should be the first country to collapse as a result of that type of fighting. It doesn't. South Lebanon does not flare up. We're not the battlefield. An unusual circumstance. Now, two years later is the Cairo Agreement, and of course by 1970 we are hosting the PLO, and Fatah comes from Jordan, Arafat arrives from Jordan, comes to Lebanon, and the rest is the story that a lot of us talk about, I talk about all the time. Uh, the one of lost sovereignty and opening our border to perpetual war. And uh, those moments of relative calm in the 1990s post-war reconstruction, followed by immediate tragedy, whether it's wars with Israel, whether it's the consequences of Syrian occupation, whether it's the plundering of the Lebanese state or what's left of it by local leaders that work with the Assad regime and later work with Hezbollah. That's the story that we know. But the anomaly of the 1960s is, is odd. It's almost 10 years where that's the dream, at least for me. And I don't subscribe to these nostalgia bashers, the ones that uh, hate everything when it comes to looking back at uh, our modern history, 1960s, not that long ago, and uh, talking about it in that it's only one side of the story. Yeah, of course. I mean, there is, there is economic injustice to many Lebanese. It's not stable the way we think. It's not, it's not, it's by no means perfect. But at least it's a stepping stone. It's where you're laying the foundation for something you can later reform. And institution building. I mean, all those things that we dream of today where reformers the language reformers use the foundation is laid then and of course you have i mean there 
I think that's the Lebanon most people refer to when they refer to of when they think back to a country that they loved, that they still love in their hearts and in their minds. It's it's those years mostly. I think could go back a bit earlier, but I think the 1960s is really it's key and. Uh, I always, always make it a point to anyone that asks for my opinion when I'm summoned to people in positions of power if they want an opinion, uh, when I'm asked by visiting characters or uh, maybe perhaps at a time some diplomats will call or they'll reach out and they want to talk. Or at times I want to talk to them. I want to correct what I think is wrong. I always make that point that it's impossible to build a country overnight. You can't just start from scratch. Lebanon does not begin October 17, 2019. And you can't just flip the story on its head and say, you know what, all that's over, we're going to start anew. It doesn't work that way. You have to at least appreciate what worked in recent times. Also that Lebanon is an old idea. It's a new country. It's a fairly new country, but it's an old way of governing. It's very old, and it's inefficient, it's sluggish, and it's, uh, it's outdated. It has to be reformed, but it's old, and countries take time. Countries take generations. They take centuries. They're not uh, Instagram posts, or in my case, tweets. And also, at times, I get erratic on Facebook, but... Um, there seems to be a sort of continuous uh, story of consensus, whether you like it or not. Sectarian, confessional, power-sharing, consociational, consensual democracy, if you want to call it democracy, whatever this thing is, this power-sharing among groups, in our case, communities, sects, whatever. That seems to be the old thing that continued. And something that Lebanese hold on to. Um, But even then, there are times of tragedy. They go back hundreds of years. I mean, look, 150 years ago, there's massacres in the mountains. Muta Sadafi is born out of a tragedy. But even then, and I'll, you know, I always remember this uh, conversation with Nadim Shahadi. Whatever you think about Nadim Shahadi, um, I am a big fan of Nadim's. That's why he's been on the podcast, I think, six times. Um, I think his way of explaining this, this putting consensus ahead of justice, even in terms of trying to perhaps imprison imprisoned Lebanese Druze and Maronites, those that committed those massacres in the mid-19th century, uh, that there's this, there's this inertia to, to find consensus and move forward. No one is sent to jail. And that's, an, that's really an agreement reached among communities. Now, the reason I'm bringing up uh, Nadim is because the most recent episode I did with him he also mentioned something else, which I thought, when I first heard him uh, mention it, it seemed a bit, seemed a bit far-fetched to me. But I've been thinking about it regularly, and that's what happens when I do an episode with Nadim. I think a lot. Um, 
the issue of sovereignty, which to me is everything. The pursuit of sovereignty. Having that foundation, which I thought was being built in the 1960s, making it permanent and expanding on it. Uh, monopoly of violence, one army, political parties that are voted in and voted out, and violence is not part of the political equation, and uh, institutions that serve citizens, that don't serve uh, corrupt leaders or even fiefdoms or whatever, that they're, they're meant to serve citizens fairly. Um, to me, that's the goal of any decent society. Lebanon should not be an exception. But the way Nadim brought it up was that maybe sovereignty is not the goal in itself, that uh, you still need some form of arrangement, you still need some form of agreement or consensus for Lebanese communities to not let this country be a battlefield. And that's more uh, important than sovereignty itself. And if I remember right, Nadim actually uh, refers to the Baabda Declaration 2012 as that kind of step. Even though it's not uh, implemented, or it's not agreed to, sorry, it's signed by Hezbollah, it's never, uh, never implemented, largely because Hezbollah throws away the idea right away. Um, but maybe that's the more important way of at least making sure Lebanon is not in a perpetual war zone-like situation. Now, I don't personally, I mean, that it seems to be a reasonable assumption if a country cannot have the sovereignty most countries take for granted, or many take for granted. And I don't think Nadim is a big fan of sovereignty, period wherever that word uh, lives. I am. I actually want the 1960s to be the benchmark. And I want us to go back to what worked. And I want us to build on that. But then here's the question. And sorry, this is a very long roundabout way of getting back to the Woody Allen-like Allen uh, scenario. It's the question of what if you cannot always count on these factors? Meaning, what if another Fu'edge Heb never reemerges? And what if, as the old saying, go, old saying goes, history doesn't repeat itself. It may echo, but it doesn't repeat itself. What if we're unable to recreate the 1960s, where Lebanon is in a problematic neighborhood, but it's able to shield itself enough? That means you have to count on the region being calm. And that may not happen soon, but let's say it happens. Let's say the region finds its way forward. Let's say you, I mean, it's like a crazy idea, but you know, there was a point in time where Iran and Israel had relations. Maybe Iran and Israel will have relations again. I don't think anything like this is permanent. It was not too long ago impossible to imagine the Saudis talking to the Israelis. The Saudis talk to the Israelis. And you know what? It's still difficult to imagine Saudi Arabia and Iran having real rapprochement and uh, sort of a, a peace process, if you will, uh, where they 
They stop battling each other in the region. It could happen. But let's say even that happens. Can you? Can The question is, is Lebanon salvageable in that even when everything is working in Lebanon's favor, can you count on all these things lining up properly so that whether you have the sovereign foundation or whether you have consensual sort of agreement, that you can finally end this entire predicament once and for all and move forward. I actually don't know. I don't know. Because it's an anomaly. The Fu'edge have years and Lebanon withering a regional storm in the 1960s, probably due to the probably due to the Fu'edge Heb's years after effects. I mean, Charles Hello is not Fu'edge Heb, but perhaps it was just a short-lived thing where the state mattered. It mattered in that fundamental way, and it withered. A storm. I'd like to think that you can go back to that and find a way for it to work. Yet, if it doesn't, is there a way for power sharing to alleviate that issue? Can you count on consensus saving Lebanon as well? It seems to be the one thing that Lebanese hold on to the most. And uh, I don't know, it's just, it's in the back of my mind always. And I think uh, more so since I spoke to Nadim recently on that episode. Uh, so that question led to, I think, a four-hour disaster because um, the people that I was with, I'm not going to name them so that they uh, don't get angry if I, when I release this. They're probably going to watch it and listen. It was a, like a spiraling into every other issue imaginable where suddenly what Joe Biden thinks, what the Phoenicians thought, um, I mean, Ottoman governors, and that's, I think I even contributed probably in a wrong way. I went too far back in time. I started talking about Fakhir al-Din. But you know what? It's the question that takes you, I think, all over the place. And then something that turns me off came up, which is that Lebanese are inherently this way, that Lebanese look for this kind of problem, that it's a Lebanese are the ones that ask other players in the region to get involved. It's Lebanon's fault. It's Lebanese fault. It's a cultural issue. It's a, it's in our DNA. It's genetic. This stuff to me just doesn't seem to add up. Even if, even if, yeah, many Lebanese figures over time have involved themselves by asking other players to fight on their behalf. Yeah, that's happened, obviously. That I mean, I think to a degree still happens at times. But uh, I don't think that's an innate characteristic. And uh, I don't know. Just uh, not sure if the... I mean, if there are guarantees that Iran steps away and the Syrians with Russia's sponsorship do not jump in right away. Can we do it? Can we actually? Can we actually 
pick up from where Fu'edj Heb and those years left off? And what if we can't? I don't know. It's just a, a question. So I'm afraid of really something which... Uh, so I, I want to live long enough to see... I want to fade off into the sunset knowing that the country is finally moving in the right direction. That's the goal. I will never live long enough to see a functioning Lebanon, or at least I don't think so. Uh, functioning in the way that I mean by decent and not this kind of absurd dysfunction. I mean knowing that the main problems are over and that the future is brighter. And if I have kids one day, they'll live in a better country. But um, I, I don't know, because it seems like there's, this country is prone to, uh, to being the battlefield. And I want whatever, got, whatever was done correctly in the 1960s, and obviously what was not done correctly to be rectified, it's not like the Deuxième Bureau, you don't want that to be... Uh, uh, repeated. You don't want Mukhabarat-style sta regime. You don't want a dictatorship. It's not that. It's more that you want to build on something that worked and you want it to last. Which, I'll end it here. It brings me back to the whole issue of looking back to a moment in time where Lebanon should have moved on from trouble. The end of the civil war, Ta'if, I mean, imagine a situation where the Syrians pulled out. Hezbollah was not a militia anymore. Iran had no leverage in Lebanon, and the Israelis left sooner than 2000. I mean, imagine all those things went right for Lebanon. Would it still be a country that could survive? Regional war. Maybe the answer at the end of the day really is a regional uh Quagmire has to be part of our history as well. You don't want persistent problems to dominate the region. You want to end the Arab-Israeli conflict for good. You want the Palestinian state to come to fruition. You want every other crooked regime in this part of the world to turn into something better. And you want democracy to flourish. And you want countries to cooperate. And you want... I mean, the things that the European Union has, you want maybe that to work here as well. You want cooperation as opposed to conflict and to move on from older fights. Maybe that is the way to save Lebanon, but it's hard to have any influence over that. So that's the sort of back end to the question, which is local agency and can Lebanese wither this type of storm? I don't know. I hope so, but I don't know. And after four hours of arguing, um, something funny happened. This whole question set off a chain of, I mean, everyone had their own take, uh, some more coherent than others. But at the end, the bill comes and we're trying to figure out who owes what. Unusual occasion, I thought one person was covering the whole bill, didn't happen. So then it became dividing on who would pay in Lawler, who would pay in Lira, how much you can pay in Lawler on your card, how much Lira you can pay on your credit card, and the different rates between cash and credit and Lawler and Lira. 
And I think that was another 30 minutes. And I don't know exactly what happened. The bill was settled. I'm not sure how it worked. And I'm also pretty sure that that is exactly what happens. That is Lebanon. No idea who paid what. No clue if it was even settled. But everyone ate. Everyone spent something. Everyone went home. Maybe that's consensus. And maybe Nadim's right. Maybe consensus is more important than sovereignty for Lebanon. Until now, I don't think so. I'll live a few more years still pushing on the 1960s as the uh, as the uh, the goal. But uh, I don't know. Nothing is absolute. And as an old friend once said, and I think it's an old saying, obviously, history is in a state of flux. So on that note, thank you. <laughs>